Hello, dear listener. We're up to episode 410 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. This one's a bit different. It's just me flying solo, talking about a book and the concepts that come from it. The book, well, there's a couple of books we'll talk about, but the main one will be The Identity Trap by Yasha Monk. And basically the idea of the book is looking at how over the last three or four decades, we've adopted a thinking, particularly in the West, where people rely on their identity for their rights in our society and an expectation that minority groups will receive special treatment by our public and private institutions where laws will be written that will affect groups of people based on their race, gender, sexual preference, things like that, rather than universal laws that would apply to everybody. And in his book, Yasha Monk is quite critical of this movement, and I agree with his criticism, and I feel that it's very relevant to the discussion that we had with the voice in this country and where people like myself were arguing for universal laws that apply irrespective of the colour of a person's skin. And other people on the left were quite happy for laws to be written that take into account the colour of a person's skin. And that's led to a lot of angst by everybody. So that's the the nature of the book by Yasha Monk, and we'll get to that. But I feel that we need to just talk more generally about um, how we think about morals at an individual level as a sort of a background before we get into the whole issue of identities. So I'll be talking a bit about a couple of Ken and Malik's books as well. So, look, that's where we're heading. It's all about identities, whether it's a valid approach to be drafting laws that give rights based on on people's membership of groups or whether we should be writing general universal laws that perhaps apply to people and give you know help disadvantage people no matter what the colour of their skin. So, just some background thoughts on that. I was only listening today. Uh, there was a podcast on Late Night Live where uh, Philip Adams was interviewing Nikki Sava and also a lady from Seven Thirty Report, Laura Tingle, and you know, sort of doing a bit of year in review and. Nikki Sava was bemoaning the whole voice debate and she did so in the context of sizing uh, Peter Dutton and his approach to the debate. And look, in this sort of criticism that I hear from Yes Advocates, I really have never heard anybody talk about people like me who are quite different to Peter Dutton, who've got an intellectually honest reason based on a, you know, a solid enlightenment principle. And people like me have been ignored and 
there's just this general insult thrown out that anyone who voted no was a racist who was claiming that the proposal was divisive and of course it wasn't divisive that that was just nonsense and you know i just haven't heard honest consideration given to uh what could be intellectually solid reasons for voting no so anyway i heard that which was frustrating another friend on a facebook page talking about the vote you know use the word shame in relation to the no vote and i know cameron riley on his pod- podcast uh uh, as we've mentioned before, said shame on me and he was embarrassed for me and people like me. And so I find it frustrating that typically the people arguing for the no vote refuse to deal with the issues one by one that people like me raise. And really I think one of the reasons is that they're unable to, and we'll get to that as part of this podcast. They're unable to because, well, as we mentioned before in this podcast, here we talk about news and politics and sex and religion, and I've been doing this for eight years, how our society works, how it should work, how it should function. And I'm used to talking about these things. Most people aren't, let's face it. You go to the proverbial dinner party or a group gathering and talking in depth about issues like this is frowned upon hence people are unpracticed at it so that's part of the problem anyway a ramshackle sort of bunch of ideas are going to be thrown at you we'll see how we go one of the things that strikes me in this conversation is how often people say you know the rest of the world will look at australia shaking their heads, what a bunch of racists. It's a moment of shame for us. And I came across one of the things in this book by Yasha Monk referred to what happened in California in 1996 with Proposition 209, which amended the state constitution in California, which prohibited the state government from considering race, sex, or ethnicity in the areas of public employment, public contracting, and public education. So basically, it was a a change to the Californian Constitution that made it impossible for the uh, California government to to provide affirmative action policies based on things like race, sex, or ethnicity. Uh, particularly in employment. So they couldn't take positive action to employ more black people or more Hispanics or more women in particular roles where they felt that there wasn't already enough of them. And that passed in 1996 with 55% of uh, Californians in favour, 45% against, which basically removed any possibility of Affirmative action. And affirmative action was, let's get it straight, it is taking into account race when making laws, kind of what The Voice is trying to do. So 
California would be viewed today as a deeply liberal state and a majority of its population is black, Asian or Hispanic. Dear listener, did you know that in 2020, when Joe Biden beat Donald Trump 64 to 34 in California, that was the vote, 64 in favour of Joe Biden, 34 for Donald Trump. At the same time, there was a Proposition 16 to repeal Proposition 20. So they had a crack at, at getting rid of Section 209 or Proposition 209 so that the Californian government could make employment laws taking into account race, sex, ethnicity, affirmative action. It failed 57 to 42. So did anybody in Australia say, shame on you, California? I didn't hear it. Bear that in mind as, as we think about the criticism that Australia faces and, and think to yourself, well, there's a state of America, the most liberal state, that said, you know what, it's not a good idea to make laws based on race, sex or ethnicity. Anyway, so we're not alone in the world if we are thinking that more universalist policies are appropriate, even in a liberal state like California. So, so let's just get back to this book by Yasha Monk. And what he's saying is that, you know, now there's a movement where people's identities are at the centre of social, cultural and political life. It's highly influential and, and it's, it's accepted that governments can and should treat citizens differently depending on, for example, the colour of their skin. He identifies this as the identity trap. Now, who is he? He's a writer, academic, public speaker known for his work on the crisis of democracy and for the defence of philosophically liberal values, born in Germany to Polish parents. He's got a BA in history from Trinity College, Cambridge, PhD in government from Harvard, professor of the practice of international affairs at John Hopkins University, where he's got appointments in both the School of Advanced International Studies and SNF Agorda Institute. So he's an academic with plenty of qualifications there. I'm also going to be mentioning, as I said before, some books by Ken and Malik, one of which is The Quest for a Moral Compass, and another one, Not So Black and White, A History of Race from White Supremacy to Identity Politics. By the way, that particular book we discussed in episode 382. Now, who's Ken and Malik? He grew up with Packy Bashing in the UK in the 1970s, and he was a victim of racism, and That racism drew him into politics, but he learnt social justice is bigger than racism and a person's skin, colour, ethnicity or culture provides no guide to the validity of their political beliefs. And he realised that shared values were more important than shared skin colour, ethnicity or culture. And the values he was drawn to were those of the enlightenment, of common humanity and universal rights his politics was not shackled to his identity. Dealing first with Kenan Malik and his book, The Quest for a Moral Compass, I've mentioned this book multiple times on this podcast and 
If you haven't bought a copy, do so and read through it if you're interested in this topic. And, you know, The Quest for a Moral Compass, great title. It's the quest by mankind. How do we, how do we develop a compass that points us in the right direction morally? What, what do we rely on as the compass for moral questions? And he says that in the ancient world, fate could not be avoided. He talks about Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey. He says, for Homer, this is the tragedy of being human, to desire freedom and be tortured by a sense of autonomy and yet be imprisoned by forces beyond our control. So the Iliad gave ancient Greeks a framework to understand their lives. It told of the desires of man, the capriciousness of gods, and the implacability of fate and how all these knitted together. So you were fated into roles in the ancient world, the ancient Greeks. By the way, the Stoics took acceptance of fate even further. The philosopher Zeno was once flogging a slave who had stolen some goods. The slave protested, but I was fated to steal. And Zeno said, yes, and to be beaten as well. Anyway, the Greeks come along, 6th century BCE, and philosophers such as as Socrates began to use the idea of humans as rational beings as a starting point of moral discussion. And he and others looked to reason as a means of finding answers. So Aristotle observed that there are many things we desire and different people desire different things. However, if our activities have some ultimate end, which we want for its own sake, and for the sake of which we want all the other things, then this must be the supreme good. The knowledge of this supreme good is of great importance to us in the conduct of our lives. Rival minor desires and wishes can be evaluated according to how they will help us achieve that ultimate end. So for Aristotle, this supreme good is eudaimonia. It means more than happiness. It describes a state of human flourishing that's worth seeking, of of living well and doing well. It's not just simple pleasure. One who possesses eudaimonia will find pleasure in his way of life, but finding pleasure is not the same as possessing eudaimonia. So the concept Uh, of an object's function was central to Aristotle's philosophy. Why does an acorn become an oak? Because that is its purpose. It's telos. In becoming an oak, it becomes what it already was potentially, and it fulfills its purpose and confirms its nature. And Aristotle says what truly distinguishes humans is the possession of reason. Hence, The exercise of reason is the proper function of a human being. Happiness consists in acting in accordance with reason, or to be more precise, it means acting virtuously in accordance with reason. Dear listener, I like to think on this podcast, we try to act and think rationally and 
a lot of the argument to do with the voice by yes advocates, in my mind, was based on feelings rather than rational thought. Anyway, for Aristotle, as for Plato, ethics was subordinate to politics. The primary good was the good of the community rather than the good of the individual. Morals grew out of the structure of the community and ensured the maintenance of that structure. Presumably, if you went back 5,000 years and geographically somewhere quite different, the morals grow out of the structure of the community that you're in and help maintain that structure. They could be quite different depending on time and place. The polis, P-O-L-I-S, was for Aristotle a natural phenomenon. Just as it was in the nature of humans to be happy, so it was in the nature of humans to come together in groups capable of supporting and sustaining happiness. So for Aristotle, no citizen should think that he belongs just to himself. Communism wasn't part of the the possibilities for Aristotle. Uh, Rather, a person must regard all citizens as belonging to the state, for each is a part of the state, and the responsibility for each part naturally has regard to the responsibility for the whole. So in the journey from Homer, which was about uh, fate, to Aristotle, you know, rational use of bearing in mind the community and the polis, uh, the Greeks crafted what we call virtue theory. So on that journey were developed the ideas of virtue as a disposition to act according to reason, of practical wisdom as a skill that inclines one to do the right thing at the right time to the right degree, of morality as requiring one to think not of single acts but of one's life as a whole and the virtuous person is someone who can be judged only according to the needs of the community of which he is a part and to which he is subordinate. All sounds a little bit vague, doesn't it? But sometimes these things have to be. Michael Sandel wrote that book, and I remember one of the examples he gave was, you know, if a community votes and decides to spend money building um, dog-fighting pits and associated stadiums so that dogs could fight and tear themselves apart, rather than, you know, public libraries, for example... Just the fact that everybody voted for that wouldn't mean it's good. There, there are times when you can use practical wisdom to do the right thing at the right time to the right degree. Anyway, that was the journey from the ancient times, ancient Greeks of fate, to trying to use reason from Aristotle. Along comes uh, religion and monotheism. And what should you do? Well, what God wants you to do, however that's explained to you, whether it's in the book or how it's interpreted or whatever, but the roadmap, the moral compass that religion provided was you do what God wants you to do. That simplified things. Then as time progresses, we get to the 16th century and we get about four sort of features start to come into play. God is not plausible to many people. Traditional communities disappeared. That makes the polis um, a problem. Using reason 
social structures could be consciously designed to promote human flourishing. So social structures were now malleable, designable, something that could be created and worked upon rather than the fixed social structures of previous times. And this period also included the rise of individual autonomy. So that was sort of the Enlightenment coming to the fore. Now, in 1981, Alastair McIntyre wrote a book called After Virtue. And look, it's a little bit lengthy. You know what? I think I've already decided this podcast is probably going to be split up into multiple episodes. So we've got Christmas coming up. You're going to need something to listen to, maybe. So excuse me if rather than rattling through summaries of this, you know, take a little bit of time, enjoy the ride on some of this stuff. So Alistair McIntyre, After Virtue, as described by uh, Kenan Malick in his book, McIntyre paints a picture, sort of a post-apocalyptic picture. Uh, imagine, dear listener, a series of environmental catastrophes devastates the world and blame falls upon scientists. So there's a whole bunch of anti-science riots where labs are burnt down, scientists are lynched, books and instruments are destroyed, and a sort of a know-nothing political movement comes to power, abolishing the teaching of science uh, and imprisons and executes scientists. Eventually there's an attempt to resurrect science. The trouble is that all the remains of scientific knowledge are a few fragments. People debate the concept of relativity, the theory of evolution, and the idea of dark matter. They learn by rote the surviving portions of the periodic table and use expressions such as neutrino, mass, and specific gravity. Nobody, however, understands the beliefs that led to those theories or expressions, and nobody understands that they don't understand them. The result is a hollowed-out science. On the surface, everyone has acquaintance with scientific terminology, but no one possesses scientific knowledge. That's how his book begins. And McIntyre says that while no calamity of this sort has befallen science, he says it's exactly what has happened to morality. Moral thought is in the same state as science was in his fictitious account. It's in a grave, a state of grave disorder. And I agree, based on the voice debate. So for me, the voice debate demonstrates that well-meaning but ignorant yes advocates use words like fairness, equality, justice, representation, equity, human rights, racism, ought, should, freedom, self-determination, morals and shame, but they don't understand those words. Honest and knowledgeable yes advocates would have said that the proposal was racist and divisive but necessary in order to overcome injustice. That would have required honesty and knowledge. They would have acknowledged that the proposal abandoned the Enlightenment principle of universalism for the relatively recent 
and often disputed principle of critical race theory. I'll be getting on to critical race theory. Intellectually honest yes advocates would have dealt one by one with the myriad of genuine objections that people like myself had, but they didn't because they weren't equipped to think rationally or consistently within a solid framework of ethical hierarchies that allows the evaluation of competing moral claims. Instead, they abandoned reason and relied on feelings and groupthink to arrive at a position that was emotionally comfortable for them, which all might be fine, but then they had to join the cheer squad, verify their lefty credentials by denouncing dissenters as racist. Anyway, I think that Alastair McIntyre was spot on and the voice debate confirmed his viewpoint on the state of moral debate in the world, particularly Australia. Now, he argued, this is Alastair McIntyre, that the Enlightenment rejected Aristotle. It rejected the notion of a virtuous life achieved by fulfilling one's purpose or telos. And it rejected it because after the Enlightenment, do what you want because the individual is sovereign. So there's no moral anchor and there's no way to adjudicate rival moral claims. If it's perfectly acceptable for an individual to do whatever they want, whenever they want, then there's no moral anchor and no way to adjudicate rival moral claims. McIntyre said that morality is the roadmap to take man as he happens to be to man as he could be. Telos, which was, you know, the acorn growing to be an oak, the thing doing uh, what it was meant to do, was the bridge. And the bridge had disappeared and therefore so had morality. That was McIntyre's view. Now, arguably, as telos for individuals waned, uh, telos for society emerged. In the ancient world, there was little possibility of willed social change, but now there is. So we can design societies. With the coming of modernity, as the necessity of traditions gave way to the possibility of collective change, a new question was posed. People now ask themselves, not simply what moral claims are rational, given the social structure, but also what social structures are rational. What kind of society, what types of social institutions will best allow moral lives to flourish? That's a modern concept that wasn't available before. So from my point of view, how are we to judge competing social structures such as universal laws as opposed to identity-based laws? If groups can do whatever they like because groups are sovereign, then you can't adjudicate competing moral claims because there's no overarching goal or objective. If groups don't have responsibilities towards other groups, there can be no moral code for groups. But if groups are subject to, say the objective of promoting all human flourishing, then we can rationally adjudicate rival social systems and try to figure out if they help achieve uh, all human flourishing. 
Okay. Now we're finally on to The Identity Trap by Yasha Monk. And it's really in five parts where he defines it, The Identity Trap. He talks about the origins of this idea of identities, how it was adopted into the mainstream, the flaws and a defence of universal ideas. I'm really going to be mostly dealing with the first two parts to that, the definition of what it is and the origin of where it came from. That's what I found the most valuable out of what he had to say. So what is it that we're talking about with this identity trap? And as he describes it, because neutral rules like non-discrimination laws are supposedly insufficient to make a difference, the advocates of the identity synthesis, as he calls it, insist that we need social norms and public policies that explicitly make how the state treats its citizens and how we all treat each other depend on the group identity to which they belong. Say that again. Because universal laws haven't worked, advocates of identity identity politics insist we need policies that explicitly make how the state treats its citizens depend on the identity group to which they belong. And if we are to overcome the long legacy of discrimination, then members of marginalised groups need to be treated with special consideration. That's what we're dealing with here. If we are to ensure that each ethnic, religious or sexual community enjoys a proportionate share of income and wealth, then our institutions must make the way they treat people depend on the groups to which they belong. That's, that's the theory that many people ascribe to. The trap, as he says, has a lure. The lure that attracts so many people to the identity synthesis is the desire to overcome persistent injustice and create a society of genuine equals. So it comes from a good place. But the likely outcome of this ideology is a society with way too much emphasis on our differences, pitting identity groups against each other in a battle for resources and recognition, where we're forced to define ourselves by the groups that we happen to be born into. It's what makes the identity synthesis a trap. He says, and I agree, while advocates are drawn to the noble ambition to remedy social injustice, you can fight these injustices without resorting to identity synthesis. So what's the problem with, with this concept? So you know, dividing, dividing humans into groups is dangerous for human beings because we're great at looking after our own group. We're often capable of cruelty and disregard for other groups. And identity politics, the advocates for it, to identify and provide a solution to this problem. We will have warring tribes rather than cooperating compatriots. And it's this sort of policy that's going to encourage and legitimise far-right identities. 
Kenan Malik in his book said, many who have taken up the Black Lives Matter banner, like many within the race consciousness movements, conflate the necessity of challenging racism with the building of racial solidarity. That's true. That's what people have come to. They say that in order to challenge racism, you need to build racial solidarity. Pursuing racial solidarity makes achieving the challenging of racism more difficult. So these, these people are, are saying we're being vilified racially. We need to build racial solidarity. But that whole building of racial solidarity is making the challenge of confronting racism more difficult. We talked about this in episode 402 to some extent, I think, still dealing with problems of, of this identity synthesis. True racists of the sort of Ku Klux Klan type, or maybe Pauline Hanson type, see racial differences as real, inherent, hardwired character differences. That thinking was used to justify slavery. It's used today to justify inequality. Things like black people don't work hard, black people don't like to save. Their problems are inherited characteristics. We've spent several centuries disavowing that notion of inherited racial characteristics. Our DNA differences are negligible. Biologically, we are the same, but now, via the politics of identity, the left wants to circle back to those differences. Kenan Malik says, We live in an age in which most societies there is a moral abhorrence of racism. But we also live in an age in which our thinking is saturated with racial ideology in the embrace of difference. The more we despise racial thinking the more we cling to it. It's like an ideological version of Stockholm Syndrome. If the left thinks it's okay to accentuate racial difference for positive reasons, then it can hardly be surprised when the right accentuates those differences. Reintroducing racial profiling reopens the door to racial thinking and to racial discrimination. There we go. That's part of the problem of what's wrong with it. Here's the interesting part of this book is the origins of, of, this, of this thinking of racial profiling in our laws. So historically, the left was universalist. To be on the left was to believe that humans matter equally, irrespective of the group to which they belong. That we should aim for forms of political solidarity that transcend group identities rooted in race or religion. One of the reasons I'm so big on secularism, dear listener, is I just object to kids being segregated in schools based on religion. I just find it abhorrent. I'm amazed that so many secularists are happy with racial-based laws. Anyway, uh, Still and historically, the left was universalist. and Part of that was that we can make common cause in pursuit of universal ideas like justice and equality. And according to Yasha Monk, that is the universalist left with which I was raised. It is the universalist leftism 
that despite my agreement with the communist views of my grandparents held when they were young, continues to inspire me. It's no longer the dominant strain of leftism today. The amazing part is, dear listener, it's such an obvious, well-known policy. Martin Luther King was all over this stuff. And if you are to hold and subscribe to the universalist viewpoint, you are dismissed as a racist because for the yes voters, the treating of people differently in our laws by virtue of race is acceptable and necessary. Even if you argue, I could accept that people could argue that it is necessary because it's not working, for example. You at least have to acknowledge that it's not some racist crackpot idea to hold on to what was a well-known enlightenment principle of universal application of laws. It astounds me that people just abandon that and and hop onto their podcasts or Facebook page telling people they should feel ashamed for subscribing still to that policy. Anyway, um, it's no longer the dominant strain of, of leftism today. So that was historically how the left was universalist. According to Yasha Monk, post-World War II, intellectuals believed capitalism was doomed and communism was the answer. But, you know, revelations came out about Stalin's tyrannical regime and what had gone on in the Soviet Union and, and people then lost faith in communism. So this led French philosopher Foucault and others... Um, to reject grand narratives and to distrust all ideologies because they had given up on capitalism. Now they had to give up on communism and it was like, well, we've just got to give up on all meta-narratives now, all grand narratives. Don't just, just distrust all ideologies. And they concluded there are no universal truths and we can't progress to a better society. That was Foucault. Spivak... S-P-I-V-A-K, was a female Indian scholar. She didn't like identity categories because, after all, identity categories are a type of ideology. They're a grand narrative, in a sense. So she didn't like identity categories. But she felt disadvantaged Indians needed intellectuals to speak on their behalf. She embraced identity because it was useful in practice, even if it was suspect in theory. And thus was born what's called strategic essen. It's where you don't want to say that all black people like such and such and have common interests and goals and desires, because you know it's not true. But you do it because it works when arguing with people. People understand it. So strategic essentialism. Faced with the problem of how to speak on behalf of the oppressed, scholars from a large number of disciplines followed in Spivak's footsteps. So they continued to wield postmodernism, Foucault, to cast doubt on any claims invoking scientific objectivity or universal principles. Because remember, there is no truth uh, there are no grand narratives. None of those things work. 
But at the same time, they insisted they can speak on behalf of groups of oppressed people by invoking the tactical need for strategic essentialism. This attempt to square the circle is still apparent today when activists preface their remarks by acknowledging that race is a social construct. Before going on to make surprisingly essentialising claims about black and brown people and what they believe. I'll go on to talk about, hmm, maybe I should digress now to Marcia Langton. I think I will. Let me just go over to Marcia Langton now. So this idea, dear listener, is that biologically we're, we're identical, that the common ideas of race do not map biologically with um, the discourse that we use. So race is socially constructed. It's not biologically true. And by that, it's, it's cultural groupings that we've come to understand. That's what we mean by social, social construction. And so... It presents a difficulty for intellectuals like Marsha Langton and Noel Pearson who know that race is not biological. It's just, it's just a social interpretation. But then want to argue for things on behalf of, of such a group and it gets them into trouble. And they end up doing all sorts of mental gymnastics to try and square the circle, as Yasha Monk puts it. We've talked about Marcia Langton before and how her comments from the Melbourne Writers' Festival in 2012 were markedly different to the comments she was making in the lead-up to The Voice. And I think that's because in 2012, um, Noel Pearson had not got his voice proposal up and running as he did at a later time. So so I'm reading now from Marsha Langton in the Melbourne Writers' Festival 2012. She writes, and I'm paraphrasing and cutting out bits and pieces, but trust me, I'm not trying to mislead you as to the essence of what she's saying. The patrons of this podcast get the show notes and they get the full text and they can see the highlights for the bits I've written. Okay, she writes, I want to explore in this chapter the problem of how to recognise Indigenous Australians in the Constitution. I am arguing that defining Aboriginal people as a race, as the Constitution does, sets up the conditions for Indigenous people to be treated not just as different but exceptional and inherently incapable of joining the Australian polity and society, like it's a bad thing. This is because there were provisions in the Constitution referring to Indigenous people as a race and dealing with them in certain ways. And she wanted Indigenous people out of the Constitution as a race. Exceptionalist initiatives that have isolated the Aboriginal world from Australian economics and social life In turn, many Indigenous Australians have developed a sense of entitlement and adopt the mantle of the exceptional Indigene, the subject of special treatment on the grounds of race. This status involves a degree of 
complicity in racism. Actually, I, sh- I paraphrase there. Let me read it again. This exceptionalist status, to which many Aboriginal people have ascribed unwittingly, involves a degree of self-loathing, dehumanisation and complicity in racism. Telling people they're different, making out that they're special, exceptional, according to Marcia Langton, involves a degree of complicity in racism. As the exotic, Aboriginal people are not required to be normal, such as attending school regularly or competing in a meritocracy. And she writes, It is vital that treating Aborigines as a race must be replaced with the idea of first peoples. And I've read in other places where Noel Pearson has said the same thing, that they want the reference to be first peoples rather than race. And, but who are first peoples? It is the indigenous race. This, there's all sorts of strange mental hoops jumped through to try and do this. She writes, regular listeners would know that I've been arguing that we should look at class and disadvantage, not skin colour, because there is a burgeoning Indigenous middle and upper class. There are second-generation PhD holders in Indigenous communities. There's lots of Indigenous people going fine, and of course there's lots who aren't. The point is to help the ones who are not going well And that's been my argument. In her writings, she says here, Ending the colonial commitment to race and the era of Indigenous exceptionalism. It also requires imagining the Australian society in which we see each other as individuals, each unique and with a multitude of characteristics. Being Aboriginal in that circumstance would not be extraordinary or contentious or reason for hatefulness. The question of how to ameliorate the conditions of the disadvantaged would be the issue, not because of their presumed racial difference, but because of their inheritance of intergenerational historical conditions. I'll read that again. The question of how to ameliorate the conditions of the disadvantaged would be the issue, not because of their presumed racial difference, but because of their inheritance of intergenerational historical conditions. Presumably, not everybody inherits intergenerational trauma. I had this argument with Cameron Riley, and I said, he said, you know, have you heard of intergenerational trauma? I said, sure, but are you saying that it transfers to every Indigenous person? How can you say that? You can't know that. There should be some people who, uh, that just does not apply. And Marcia Langton went on to quote Morgan Freeman, the American actor. And we've quoted Morgan Freeman, Morgan Freeman before. So, so, yeah, that was a little diversion where we have this issue where people promoting identity have convoluted and difficult to understand reasoning when it comes to the social construction of race, yet still wanting to use race in laws um, as, as a determining factor. Right. 
So we were talking about Co, we're talking about Spivak, and next on the list in the sort of origin story is Derek Bell. The civil rights movement achieved a lot, but not enough for some. Derek Bell was a lawyer who argued that universalism was ineffective and that there was a need for race-based rights to achieve racial equity. Kenan Malik talks about Derek Bell. He says, Few people have heard of Derek Bell, but he is the godfather of critical race theory. Bell came to believe that racism is permanent. Few who were inspired by Bell's work tumbled as far as he did into the well of despair. Yet challenging racism, while believing it to be ineradicable, has inevitably shaped the character of anti-racism. So you've got to get in your head here. Derek Bell thought it was hopeless, that universal laws weren't doing it enough to make change. There had to be specific race-based laws to achieve racial equity. So this movement has uh, prompted a shift from campaigns for material change to campaigns for symbolic gestures and representational fairness. According to Malik, um, these people have given up on eradicating racism and are now... uh, They honestly think it cannot be eradicated. So they're just looking now for symbolic gestures and representational fairness. After all, if racism is permanent and attempts to eliminate it are futile, anti-racism becomes reduced to little more than a kind of public performance. That's Ken and Malik. So Derek Bell, one of the, well, the godfather of critical race theory, the idea that universal laws are ineffective, there needs to be race-based rights to achieve racial equity. Now, he was lecturing and at a university. He got promoted to another university, uh, Harvard. He was lecturing at Harvard, and they hired a veteran lawyer to teach a more traditional course. But the students rebelled, and under the leadership of an outspoken first-year student called Kimberly Crenshaw, um, that's who they were rebelling with, she went on to become a leader in the movement. Crenshaw coined the term interest for the ways different forms of discrimination can reinforce each other. So an example of this was when General Motors began retrenching workers on the basis of the most recent persons hired were to be the first people to be retrenched. And at that point in history, black women had only recently managed to gain employment in General Motors So the policy resulted in a disproportionate number of black women being retrenched. And according to the judge's logic, the plaintiffs needed to prove that General Motors discriminated against its employees on the basis of a protected characteristic that was explicitly listed in the law, such as that of being black or that of being a woman. Because the company had treated both black men and white women fairly, the special burden suffered by black women was not legally relevant. And uh, Crenshaw argued that this created a legal blind spot. So under this view, black women are protected only to the extent that their experiences coincide with those of either white women or black men. Where their experiences are distinct, black women will not get protection. So 
Another example was when Crenshaw was invited to a private club with a black friend and the club had changed its rules to allow black men to enter via the normal entrance. However, the rule had not been changed for women, so Crenshaw was forced to use the back door. So intersection in its meaning evolved to the point where it meant that each person exists at an intersection of identities, i.e. your identity is perhaps black and being a woman. And outsiders, people who do not have that particular combination, can never truly understand them or, yeah, can never truly understand them. So that's a big part of intersectionality is that outsiders who don't have those characteristics can never truly understand that person's position. And additionally, intersectionality came to mean that to be committed to eradicating one form of injustice requires activists to be committed to eradicating all other forms of injustice. The Sierra Club is an environmentalist group that's historically seen it as its mission to promote the responsible use of the Earth's ecosystem and resources. But the organisation now issues statements on a bewildering range of different topics, from demanding that the Biden administration tear down the wall to joining calls to defund the police. So we've got an environmental group on migration policy and defunding the police. Because with intersectionality, you have to acknowledge that to properly achieve justice, there's a multitude of identities outside of your particular group who may be marginalised and disadvantaged and you need to, if you are a true justice warrior, um, be on their side for their issues as well. So that was uh, sectionality. I'm going to talk about standpoint theory in a moment, but uh, the sort of critical race theory, intersectionality, uh, identity thinking really took over. Uh, After the fall of the Soviet Union, the class struggle fell out of fashion and the left was vulnerable to a takeover. One of the key drivers, according to Yasha Munk, uh, that enabled this identity synthesis to take take the place of class thinking was the fact that Facebook, Twitter, other media the articles most likely to be shared spoke directly to the interests and experiences of particular identity groups. So you've got to remember, dear listener, people are doing it tough. Unions have disappeared. Uh, No one seems to be looking out for the working poor anymore, but there are identity groups out there. And so it makes sense that people would be drawn to these identity groups as a means of trying to achieve some improvement in their lives. People gave up on achieving justice for the working class and resorted to their minor identity group and hoping to achieve something for their group because they had given up on the class struggle. One of the key aspects of identity synthesis is standpoint theory. So standpoint theory has four interlocking claims. 
there is a set of significant experiences that virtually all members of particular oppressed groups share. Their experiences give members of the group special insight into the nature of their oppression and other socially relevant things. Members of the group cannot fully communicate those experiences to outsiders. And when an oppressed group makes political demands based on the identity its members share, outsiders should defer to them. So I think all of those features of standpoint theory were mentioned a lot in the voice debate, looking at Indigenous people. Do you think you heard these sorts of concepts flying around? There's a significant experience, sorry, there is a set of significant experiences that virtually all members of particular oppressed groups share. For example, the feeling of having been subject to racism. Their experiences give members of the group special insight into the nature of their oppression and other socially relevant facts. You wouldn't know what it's like to be racially vilified. Only members of the group have special insight into what that feels like. Members of the group cannot fully communicate those experiences to outsiders. So no matter how much I talk to you as an Indigenous person, I can't convey to you fully what it means to be racially vilified. And fourthly, when an oppressed group makes political demands based on the identity its members share, outsiders should defer to them. So we, the leaders of Indigenous people, demand X, Y, Z, and you as an outsider should simply defer to our demands. That's sort of the four interlocking claims in standpoint theory and dealing with some of those ideas here's a good story in 1967 the producers of a surprise broadway hit took their show to a faraway country for the first time they were nervous about how it would be received fiddler on the roof focuses on the life of an orthodox jewish family in a central european Stettel at the turn of the 20th century. Would theatregoers in Tokyo be able to relate to the internal struggle of the show's protagonist, a devout Jew who has come to terms with his three daughters choosing deeply unsuitable husbands? Would the Japanese get that Jewish story? They need not have worried. As Joseph Stein, who wrote the musical's book, recalls, I got there just during the rehearsal period and the Japanese producer asked me, do they understand this show in America? And I said, of of course, we wrote it for America. Why do you ask? The Japanese producer said, because it is so Japanese. Dear listener, empathy with the plight of others may take hard work, but it remains both possible and politically indispensable. To know what it feels like to eat a blueberry you need to have tasted a blueberry. But the same does not apply to what philosophers call propositional knowledge. So here's an example. So in the, I'm quoting here from the book and he's talking about some academics. Fraser is one of the academics. And I think Juno Mack and Molly Smith. Anyway, Fraser gives a striking example of how this distinction between experiential and propositional knowledge becomes relevant in debates about important questions of public policy. For example, many feminists 
favour restrictions on the sale of sexual services, but worry that laws that criminalise sex workers will stigmatise them in dangerous ways. So for that reason, they favour the so-called Nordic model, which makes it legal for sex workers to offer their services, but illegal for clients to buy them. This seems like an elegant solution, discouraging sex work without marginalising the vulnerable women who engage in it. But of late, Juno Mack and Molly Smith have put forward strong arguments against the Nordic model based on their own experiences as sex workers, they claim that these laws are likely to do significant harm. Where sex work is outlawed, potential clients have a strong reason to solicit prostitutes in hidden or remote places. They are also in a stronger negotiating position because the fear of being punished drives down the number of potential customers. Due to these mechanisms, which most feminists had overlooked... The Nordic model puts sex workers at greater risk of harm. Now, Fraser points out that Mac and Smith would have been unlikely to come up with these insights if they had never been sex workers. But she also insists that the politically relevant implications of those insights can easily be grasped by people who haven't worked as sex workers. While you and I may not share their experiential knowledge, we are able to understand and act on the propositional knowledge they derived from it. The role of experience in politics should not be overstated. Who we are will shape what we learn about the world, but it need not constrain our ability to communicate those insights to others. I reckon that's a great example. Now, some of you are going to say, but Trevor... See, you had to be a sex worker to get that knowledge. And so with The Voice, it was about getting feedback from Indigenous people about what it's like to be Indigenous. And my answer to that is it was more than consulting. We already consult Indigenous people. If you look at the myriad of reports about various issues, you will be usually highly impressed by the level of consultation we asked people what they want, asked them what they know. So yes, of course you need to consult with stakeholders, which includes the marginalised group that you're trying to help, the members of it, for their own personal experience. But it is then quite possible to take away from that this propositional knowledge and, f- and understand the problem that's been caused and then be able to come up with solutions. And of course, the people who are oppressed and in the minority are not going to know everything about how the world works. None of us do. We need a wide variety of experts in various fields to help us understand. So at that point, multitudes of people from all walks of life provide input to create solutions. Right. It goes on in this book. Embracing a vision of political solidarity based on thoughtless deference rather than hard-won empathy makes it harder to bring about real political progress. We do not, as a matter of course, see or know the obstacles faced by most of our fellow citizens. In important ways, our experience of the world really is 
mediated by our identity. This gives all of us moral obligation to listen to each other with full attention and an open mind. But the point of this hard work is communication, not deference. As long as we put in the work, we can come to understand each other's experiences, especially insofar as they are politically relevant. When our fellow citizens tell us about the genuine injustices they face, we are perfectly capable of empathising with their experience and of recognising the way in which they violate our own aspirations for the kind of society we want to live in. <sighs> Where are we up to? An hour and 15. Maybe it's, it is only one episode. One of the issues in this book as well that I just came across was about time limits with race-sensitive laws. So there was a 2003 Supreme Court decision in the US which upheld race-sensitive admission policies at the University of Michigan. The judgment decision was written by Sandra Day O'Connor and joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it explained in the decision that racial classifications, however compelling their goals are, they're potentially so dangerous they may be employed no more broadly than the interest demands. And all government use of race must have a logical end point. And O'Connor and Ginsburg expected that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. So they thought it was important that if you are going to have a race-based law, it's so dangerous, you need to have an endpoint in there and recognise it's only a short-term solution. And um, Marcia Langton said that Noel Pearson was aware of this. And in that same essay for the Melbourne Writers Festival 2012, uh, she wrote... There was one problem that Noel Pearson raised, the problem of how to gauge the progress in removing disadvantage and therefore, and thereby remove from legislation the special measures designed to address them once the goals were achieved. She writes, This is an absolutely necessary part of the puzzle I have outlined here. We must address this problem, the problem of, of a time limit, in order to remove the scourge of racism from the constitutional wheels of our social machine. It is a part of human rights practice to allow for special measures that discriminate in favour of a disadvantaged group. What she's saying there is it's critical race theory is now human rights practice. But she says, but these measures must be temporary or the fabric of human rights law and principle is breached. She goes on to say there's a growing Aboriginal middle class etc, etc. But she says here, the measures must be temporary. I don't recall any discussion on The Voice about a time limit for The Voice. It seemed to be never discussed to my knowledge. Write to me if you heard of a time limit for The Voice. Marcia Langton in 2012, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, both thought, and Noel Pearson that there should be time limits when you're using race-based laws, but we never heard of any.
<sighs> okay. Maybe I'll finish with Chris Hedges. Yeah. So Chris Hedges, a lefty, travelled a lot through the Middle East, writes extensively about the injustices meted out by America in the Middle East, former Presbyterian minister, does volunteer work in jails, um, a good guy. And he writes in Shear Post, the brutal murder of Tyre Nichols by five black Memphis, Tennessee police officers should be enough to implode the fantasy that identity politics and diversity will solve the social, economic and political decay that besets the United States. Not only are the former officers black, but the city's police department is headed by Serilyn Davis, a black woman. None of this helps Nichols, another victim of modern-day police lynching. The militarists, corporatists, oligarchs, politicians, academics and media conglomerates champion identity politics and diversity because it does nothing to address the systemic injustices or the scourge of permanent war that plague the US. It's an advertising gimmick, a brand used to mask mounting social inequality and imperial folly. It busies liberals and the educated with a boutique activism, which is not only ineffectual, but exacerbates the divide between the privileged and a working class in deep economic distress. The haves scold the have-nots for their bad manners, racism, linguistic insensitivity and garishness, while ignoring the root causes of their economic distress. The oligarchs could not be happier. In case you didn't know, dear listener, he wants class-based policies rather than identity-based policies. And the activism in these groups for representation where, you know, if 3% of the population is Indigenous, then 3% of our brain surgeons must be Indigenous and 3% of, you know, police must be Indigenous and 3% of everything else must be Indigenous. Just because you get representation doesn't mean you get justice, as Ty Nichols found out. And just because we get Indigenous representation in Parliament, if they're right-wing neoliberals like Jacinta Price, who are going to be advocating for lower taxes and lower social services because of trickle-down economics, then the fact that you've got representation isn't going to help. You'd be much better off with a white person advocating for class policies to help the working class than a black person arguing for the continuation of oligarchic power. That's what he's getting at. Still talking about representation. Did the lives of Native Americans improve as a result of the legislation mandating assimilation and the revoking of tribal land titles pushed through by Charles Curtis, the first Native American vice president? There you go. A Native American vice president pushed through that. Are we better off with Clarence Thomas, who opposes firm affirmative action on the Supreme Court? Or Victoria Newland, a war hawk in the State Department? 
is our perpetuation of permanent war more palatable? Because Lloyd Austin, an African-American, is the Secretary of Defence. Is the military more humane because it accepts transgender soldiers? Is social inequality and the surveillance state that controls it ameliorated because Sundar Pichai, who was born in India, is the CEO of Google and Alphabet? Has the weapons industry improved because Kathy J. Warden, a woman, is the CEO of Northrop Grumman? And another woman, Phoebe Novakovic, is the CEO of General Dynamics. We live under a species of corporate colonialism, the engines of white supremacy, which constructed the form of institutional and economic racism that keep the poor poor, are obscured behind attractive political personalities such as Barack Obama, who Cornel West called a black mascot for Wall Street. The faces of diversity are vetted and selected by the ruling class. The institutions write the script. It's their drama. They choose the actors. Called those who promote identity politics representationalists who want to see some black people represented in all sectors of leadership, in all sectors of society. They want black scientists. They want black movie stars. They want black scholars at Harvard. They want blacks on Wall Street. But it's just representation. That's it. Identity politics and diversity allow liberals to wallow in a cloying moral superiority. They do not confront the institutions that orchestrate social and economic justice, seek to make the ruling class more palatable. They are the useful idiots of the billionaire class, moral crusaders who widen the divisions within society that the ruling oligarchs foster to maintain control. Diversity is important, but diversity when devoid of a political agenda that fights the oppressor on behalf of the oppressed is window dressing. It is about incorporating a tiny segment of those marginalised by society into unjust structures to perpetuate them. Diversity when it serves the oppressed is an asset, but a con when it serves the oppressors. There you go. That's Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And I have a little thing here, reflections on his idea. Getting minorities into institutions is useless if they are not there to change the institutions. Putting right-wing neoliberal black people into power isn't going to help black people impoverished by right-wing neoliberal philosophy. It will provide a cover for the harmful activities of the institution. The voice runs the risk of achieving representation, but without a philosophy to deal with the problems of Indigenous people. And there we go. So that's the identity trap, Yasha Monk, prefaced by a bit of Kenan Malik, the quest for a moral compass, interspersed with a few other bits and pieces. So more stuff for you to think about. And I think we'll be back next week with Scott and Joe, and then we'll probably take a break for a few weeks. So if you are a patron, then you get show notes, which is great. If you're not a patron, what do you think of doing it? I've lost a couple recently. A few people didn't like my views, such as the ones that have just espoused now and left. So if you think it's worthwhile, this podcast, then 
that's one way of showing your support. And um, I think that's all for the moment. I hope you've if you've stayed through to the end, that's great. Be nice to have some feedback. I hope it was entertaining enough. Anyway, talk to you next week. Bye for now.